Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a series of unpopular rulings by the Supreme Court that ended affirmative action in college admissions, stopped President Biden from cancelling student debt, and sanctified bigotry by a lying web designer who was not even in business when she said a gay couple wanted her to work for them claiming it was a violation of her religious liberty, even though the potential customer she cited was a straight man married for 15 years. Joining us to discuss the ruling against student loan forgiveness, which has forced the Biden administration to go back to the drawing board using the Higher Education Act of 1965, is Renee Christian Moyer, an organizer with the Debt Collective who is also a tenant organizer who has worked to cancel rents during the COVID-19 pandemic and is a student debt holder. We'll discuss Senator Sanders' plan to use the same act to cancel debt immediately and challenge Chief Justice Roberts to come back and impose a debt burden on millions of struggling young American students. Then we'll discuss the widely accepted observation that Trump has a cult-like following of supporters and that as a cult leader, he is able to keep his followers immune from facts and information as they double down in loyalty to their guru or Fuhrer in the face of more and more evidence of Trump's criminality and treason. Joining us is Dr. Stephen Hassan, one of the foremost authorities on cults and mind control and the founder of the Freedom of Mind Resource Center. He is a nationally certified counselor, licensed mental health counselor, and the author of three of the most respected books on the subject of cults, which include Combating Cult Mind Control, The Number One Guide to Protection, Rescue and Recovery from Destructive Cults, Releasing the Bonds, Empowering People to Think for Themselves, Freedom of Mind, Helping Loved Ones Leave Controlling People, Cults and Beliefs, and his latest, The Cult of Trump. Then finally, we'll get an update on the aftermath of the mutiny inside the Russian military and the Ukrainian counteroffensive underway and speak with Olga Lautman, a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations, and tactics used in their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. She has a new Substack newsletter covering Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Central Europe with a focus on Russia's intelligence operations available at olgalautman.substack.com. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now, Renee Christian Moyer, an organiser with the Debt Collective. He's also a tenant organiser who has worked to cancel rent during the COVID-19 pandemic and is a student debt holder. Welcome to Background Briefing, Renee Christian Moyer. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Renee. And of course, the Supreme Court handing down the decision on Friday to undo Biden's attempts to cancel student debts saying it was unconstitutional based on the HEROES Act. Now you have President Biden essentially saying that he's going to try and do a sort of workaround under the uh, the Higher Education Act of 1965. And, he, and of course, Biden's saying it's going to take a lot longer. Why do you think they didn't go with the Higher Education Act of 1965 to underpin their debt cancellation program in the first place? And now they have to come back to a default position. It's going to take a lot longer before there'll be any action. You know, that's a a question that I don't think is something that we will ever quite know uh, what exactly happened You know, on that. We do know that from the very beginning, the Debt Collective, as well as a lot of our partner organizations, had called for the use of the Higher Education Act. But I think what's important to emphasize right now as we talk about using the Higher Education Act at this point is that we didn't just call for the Higher Education Act to be used, but rather that it be uh, contextualized or used alongside some other kind of benchmarks that we thought were important, right, to avoid a legal challenge of this kind. And among them, the most important of them was, in, in my book, was that the president act with speed. In other words, that he immediately cancel the debt, that there would, that there should be no application process, no means testing, and to just do it immediately in that way to avoid a, a you know, a flimsy, and in the case, I think, of, of what just happened now in the Supreme Court, kind of fraudulent, you know, lawsuit, uh, to avoid that altogether. And so instead, what we have now is this almost this warning, right, that there is going to be a more laborious, um, slower process that we fear might not uh, be effective, that might be open itself up to, to scrutiny as well. Well, I can see that maybe it works as a campaign issue for the Democrats, that the Republicans and their, this far-right Supreme Court don't give a damn about students and student debt. And after all, I don't know what happened to this country, but somehow or other, you know, students used to be seen as as centers of investment. And then they suddenly became centers of profit where they get saddled with a lifetime of debt before they even graduate. And it's obviously has detrimental economic impacts. In fact, the, the Biden White House did point out that there are economic consequences for saddling students and paralyzing their future because they otherwise would be buying cars and homes and refrigerators, etc. So that's the argument. So let me just touch on what you just said, though, because Bernie Sanders is saying something similar. Bernie Sanders on uh, Friday said, today I'm urging the Biden administration to implement a plan B immediately to cancel student debt for tens of millions of Americans who are struggling to pay the rent, put food on the table and pay for basic necessities of life. Despite this legally unsound Supreme Court decision, the president has a clear authority under the Higher Education Act of 1965 to cancel student debt. He must use this authority immediately. So, Renee, that's exactly what you're saying as well. 
So if Biden, you know, just suddenly woke up and decided to get tough, as opposed to being a consensus builder, if he got decided to get tough and just said, okay, let's just cancel the debt and order the Secretary of Education to do so, he'd be throwing a challenge to Chief Justice John Roberts. And would that mean that Roberts would then have to turn around and tell the students of America that tough luck, now you've got to go back? In other words, do you think that is a sound strategy? I think it's the only strategy when confronting a Supreme Court that in over the last 12 months, and in fact longer, right, has eviscerated uh, civil rights for folks. They have eviscerated voting rights for folks. They have taken away uh, a woman's reproductive rights. They have uh, taken away affirmative action just in the last, again, 24 to 48 hours. They have canceled, right, this, the student loan cancellation a program. I think when you're confronting a court that is this deeply ideological, that is, and I should also add, add by the way, the, the recent ruling on the discrimination against LGBTQ communities as well, right? So when you are confronting a court that is this deeply ideological, that is driven by a reactionary politics, you have to grow a spine, right? You have to actually uh, respond with the force that the moment requires. Uh, I'm afraid that we're not going to learn that lesson, despite what we have seen from this court over the past two to three years. Um, I do think that it might be dawning on the president that uh, there has to be some level of confrontation. I think that the president's reaction on Friday was a, a very valuable reaction. I think that was one of the things, again, that, that leaves me quite positive because of the strength of feeling of his response at the fact that he thinks that he, he can and should try again, which he, he should. Uh, I think that is exactly the, the, the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of politics he needs to be playing again in a moment when you're confronting a reactionary court of this kind. But let's go through the scenario then, Renee. If Biden takes Bernie Sanders' advice and your advice and just gets tough and says, OK, I have the authority under the Higher Education Act of 1965 to cancel student debt, and I'm going to just cancel it right now. It's a done deal. And throw the ball back in Supreme Court and John Roberts's lap. And then what does Roberts do? Then what? He's likely, and the Republicans are likely to howl, blue murder. So can you shame John Roberts? That would seem to be the only alternative there. Would he then try and strike down the Higher Education Act 1965? I mean, how do you see this thing playing out just as a scenario? That's a good question. I, you know, I, we haven't wargamed, or at least I have not wargamed all of the scenario itself, but there are very basic things that this, this, that such a decision could lead to, right? What and, and we have to actually contextualizing in what actually happened with the current decision, right? I would argue that the president did have the authority, even under the HEROES Act, to do this. I think the language is plain even in the HEROES Act, although weaker than it is in the Higher Education Act. I, I will say, though, that what the, the big mistake was in, in the fact that the president set down the desire to create an application process, excuse me, an application process that was means tested, 
it, they took months to put the application process up. And even after they had started running that application, they weren't immediately canceling people's debts. Now, what did that give time for the Republican challengers to do? It allowed them time to be able to try to find a fake or, well, a real organization that actually wasn't itself trying to, to sue as a party, right, to, to the debt cancellation itself. But they were able to find a, a guinea pig organization and a, uh, you know, uh, some attorneys general at the state level, a couple of states actually, you know, attempted something similar. They then sued for harm that was being caused to their, their business and then to get an injunction to prevent the cancellation from moving forward. In the scenario where he invokes the Higher Education Act and immediately cancels the debt, then you don't you basically take away the possibility that you're going to see an arms race, if you will, to find uh, an organization, a, a, a set of folks who have standing before the court at all and and basically take that away immediately. But more importantly, I think you would essentially force the court, I think, and this is the important thing, you would force the court to have to try to go back on a way in which the courts normally operate in these processes, which is to say they're not going to suddenly take away something that has already been given, right? They're not going to suddenly say, actually, all of you need to have this debt again. That is that is a distinction that I think matters here, as opposed to a promise, which is what the, the, the Biden plan was initially, a Biden, a, a Biden pro- promise that was not complete because the court stopped it. In this case, the, the process will have, you know, completed itself. And so the way in which the Supreme Court would try to roll it back would be more politically difficult, I think, for the court, more legally, frankly, difficult for the court as well. It might open up a lot of other, um, you know, it would open up a, a ton of cans of worms uh, on the procedural um, side that I don't think even this court would be willing to, to go down. Well, the State's Attorney General's Association that you mentioned, the fingerprints of Leonard Lear, who's the one that stacked the federal bench and, and put these six conservatives or ultra-conservatives on the Supreme Court, this champion of dark money who's got now got $1.6 billion to play with, a lot of the money he's funneled through these dark money channels to the State's Attorney General's Association to bring this suit. Also, he funneled money into... Um, the web designer who they ruled in favor of her even though she wasn't even in business when she brought the suit and she lied about a customer approaching her he wanted her to provide some kind of gay wedding announcement for her turned out the guy that they mentioned in, in the court filings is a straight guy been married for 15 years and never heard of this woman so they, what they've been doing is just so disgusting in terms of this supreme court shopping and having these phony right-wing activist groups, including this phony group, Students for Fair Admissions, that basically uh, was the vehicle through which they struck down affirmative action for college admissions. So this is the game that they play. And it would seem that in this particular case of student debt, there's no countervailing movements on the left except outrage and the possible political consequences for the Republicans in the 2024 elections. So in terms of your organization, what kind of allies do you have? Because clearly, when you've got people like Leonard Leo and billions of dollars behind him, it's a real problem. 
No, that that's a, a really fair question to ask. I will say that in the build-up to the cancellation last year uh, or the cancellation announcement, we we had built a very large coalition of organizations, everyone from the AFL-CIO to the NAACP, uh, you know, hundreds of organizations that were joining with us in support of the cancellation, right? I think that this moment is going to demand a consolidation of that coalition, right? I think it's also, yeah, I think it is going to demand a, both a, an insistence on tactics that might make people feel a bit queasy, right? So what we're saying now about this this game of cat and mouse with the Supreme Court to stop it, to take away um, the possibility of another frivolous uh, lawsuit. I think it's also, yes, going to include a, a public pressure campaign on the ground. I think ultimately it has to be our base, our folks, our organizations and the politics, politicians who say that they're fighting on our side, being willing to go to the brink and to say to the Supreme Court that if it continues to operate as a rogue court, that is, it is willing to legislate from the bench, if it is willing to basically take people's rights and to do so using bogus procedure, then it means that, that folks outside of the Supreme Court, other institutions, should deserve the right, basically, to say to the court, we can't follow, we can't abide by these decisions, right? I think it is important. Uh, for the the constitutional order of this of this country, I think it's important for democracy that the court not get away with making decisions in this way. And so, for that reason, again, it is important that we consolidate the coalition that we that we build. I think it's more important for my organization on a practical level to also just increase, broaden, and deepen the base of people who are involved with the debt collective. And so, we we need to make it a home. For anyone who is is you know confused by this moment, and if you are listening to the radio today, go to debtcollective.org and join us. And I think it's also important to put pressure on our side, right, on all of those politicians who say that they want student debt cancellation to hold to their word. I think that all of these things are important. So just in closing then, Renee, you are a student debt holder. You and what the millions, uh, 20 million, right? Students like you. I, there What's are, the number? I think it's it's about 43 million folks 43 who million. have student loans. Wow. Yeah. And, and, well, yeah, that's a lot of voters. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. That's a lot of voters. Do you think that's going to be a factor? Do you think this is going to be a motivating factor in getting young people to vote in this 2024 election? I think that it will, and I think it'll be important also when put aside uh, or alongside all of these other decisions that the court has made, right? Roe v. Wade continues to be a political issue. I think that folks are going to look at the decisions around LGBTQ discrimination and also be aghast at that decision. There are so many of these different decisions that the court has made that it has made itself into a politicized body. I think it is only a matter of time before the court itself becomes a, a, a question of debate, I think public debate, but not just as, a, as a, a, a political football between the administrations and between the political parties, but itself as an institution, as a, as a set of people becomes politicized, right? I think we've reached that moment. And the fact that there are 43 million Americans that have been told today that they cannot have their student debt canceled, 
because of this body of, you know, theocratic reactionary Supreme Court justices, I think it means that a lot of people will wake up to the illegitimacy of the court and will vote accordingly. I think it's not the only way we hold them to account, but I do think that it's important that we do so through the ballot box as well. Well, Renee Christian Moya, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Renee Christian Moyer, who's an organizer with the Debt Collective. He's also a tenant organizer who has worked to cancel rent during the COVID-19 pandemic and is a student debt holder. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how, since Trump has a cult-like following and he is a cult leader, whether there is a way to deprogram Trump's followers. Inflation getting higher makes it hard on the Unemployment on the rise, gasoline issue filled with lines, rent being paid late, please, let the dollar circulate, let the dollar circulate. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Stephen Hassan, one of the foremost authorities on cults and mind control and the founder of the Freedom of Mind Resource Center, Incorporated. He is a nationally certified counselor, licensed mental health counselor, and the author of three of the most respected books on the subject of cults, which include Combating Cult Mind Control, the number one guide to protection, rescue, and recovery from destructive cults, Releasing the Bonds, Empowering People to Think for Themselves, and his latest, Freedom of Mind, Helping Loved Ones Leave Controlling People, Cults, and Beliefs. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Thank you so much. I'll just add my latest book is The Cult of Trump um, for Simon & Schuster. So there are actually four books that I've written. Well, that couldn't be more appropriate to our conversation, because that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. And that is the, I mean, a lot of people have made this observation that Trump's popularity and his political movement is more of a cult. And it seems that the Republican Party has devolved into a cult of personality because every piece of evidence of Donald Trump's criminality seems to become another reason for his followers to double down and defend him and presumably vote for him in 2024. So my thesis for the book, uh, which has been validated um, without exception, including my prediction if he didn't get reelected, there would be violence, and I even quoted Jim Jones. Um, My thesis is actually that there are cults that are manipulating and controlling Donald Trump and who are bringing millions of their believers to follow Donald Trump. So it's less of a cult of personality than an authoritarian cult with him as the figurehead. Uh, and he certainly is uh, the, 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 the communicator of the cult. But um, I, I, I will say that when I was first asked to do the book, I started with the thesis that he was a malignant narcissist which is the stereotypical profile of cult leaders. And in chapter three of The Cult of Trump, I compare him with my former cult leader, Sun Myung Moon, as well as Hubbard of Scientology and Jim Jones of the People's Temple. But as I dug into the research, what I understood 
was that this was a much, much bigger uh, problem that has been work been uh, developing over 50 years, uh, including the Mooney's newspaper, the Washington Times, the Council for National Policy, uh, the Family, Opus Dei, uh, New Apostolic Reformation, churches and megachurches, uh, the NRA, the neo-Nazis. So I, I list the different cults that um, form the cult of Trump and continue to this day, unfortunately. So, in other words, what you're saying, Steve, is that he has a cult following, but there are other cults that either control him or augment his stature. Is that how it works? Yeah, in other for words, example, Russia, I believe, recruited him a long time ago, according to Craig Unger, who wrote American Compromat and Yuri Schwetz, a former KGB, KGB official, uh, who was much higher than Vladimir Putin in the KGB, said, oh, you recruited Trump a long time ago in New York and brought him to Russia, etc., etc." But what I want to say that the public really needs to understand is that the media has been mischaracterizing his base as American evangelicals or white evangelicals. And the core of his base are prosperity ministers and things called New Apostolic Reformation churches, where the leader claims to be a prophet or an apostle who gets direct revelations from God, speaks in tongues, casts out demons, does faith healings. These are all presumably, of course. And it's these people who prophesied Trump won in 2020. So despite all of the evidence, including his former attorney general saying the election was won by, by Biden, these people have prophesied that Trump won. Therefore, he won, <laughs> no matter what evidence. And we're talking about 40 million approximately Americans and 950 million people worldwide. And this is a global movement, NAR. And uh, the media calls it a popularist uprising, but it's a quite organized, systematic, authoritarian set of cults right. that are very dangerous and anti-democracy and human rights. So would you add QAnon to that? And where does that fit into that? Q into that QAnon's in the book. I actually did a TEDx talk dismantling QAnon, describing it as a PSYOP, a psychological warfare operation, and I evaluate it with my bite model of authoritarian control model um, as the destructive cult, and bite stands for behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. And it started as a fourth generation psychological warfare uh, tool, but then it became a fifth generation uh, warfare. And I'll explain it very briefly this way, that this is a military construct from the 80s by a guy named William Lynn, an American military strategist. And the idea is to create distrust in experts, in science, in institutions, in order to create chaos, in order to disrupt people's sense of reality so that they're more fearful 
and therefore will be more likely to be controlled by a, a voice with certainty. And where it turns from fourth generation to fifth is when they start marching in the streets and, and doing kinetic violent acts. And that's where we are right now. The good news is that it's not permanent. Mind control of people is not permanent, but it does require specialized messaging uh, to help people reality test. And I'm saying this as someone who was in a cult, the Moonies, as a leader and as a fanatic who was trained to believe America uh, American democracy was satanic and that the group needed to have theocracy to control the world. So I'm speaking as someone who got out of that mindset and has spent 47 years uh, not only studying social psychology and hypnosis and cults, but actually helping people to get out of these things. Well, I certainly want to talk to you about how do we deprogram Trump's cult followers uh, which comprise, as you mentioned, he got 84 million votes. So at least half of these votes from in 2020 were from cult followers. But I just wanted to touch on the obvious thing about cults and how you, as a former Mooney, how you try and deprogram people. The key is surely, Steve, that they don't accept reality and real information, that they're in a cocoon, in a bubble, of delusion that the cult leader manufactures and and contains so that they never stray from his version of reality. So what, for example, does the role of Fox News play in keeping Trump's followers in that bubble of delusion where they will not be influenced by information or facts? So let me say as a mental health professional that what mind control does is creates a dissociative disorder, which means a person's identity itself is being reprogrammed in the image of the cult. So it's kind of think of it as Steve Hassan before the Mooney, Steve Hassan as a Mooney. Uh, and if you attack any leader doctrine or group directly with facts, or in any way be critical, it activates the cult identity that's trained to do thought stopping, to block any negative information. It activates phobias, which had been installed in people's minds to make them fearful. And so the, the Fox is just one part of it. I would say uh, uh, smartphones and social media platforms are the primary tool that the controllers are manipulating the followers in the cult of Trump. Well, Trump himself, of course, is brilliant at this, isn't he? I mean, I think historians are going to look at the post-January the 6th moment where you had people like Kevin McCarthy and the former majority leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, condemning Trump in the most powerful terms. But then they chickened out because of the base. So had they shown some courage, do you think it would have made a difference? Could they could you have educated the base back then and you know have have people like McCarthy and McConnell speak the truth as they know it 
that this guy lost and he's a total disgrace and he just, you know, should limp off into um, <laughs> history books and never bother us again. Instead, he was able to hoist this lie that he won and after a while they just caved to this massive tide of delusion that swept across the country. Right, but just understand that it's not just that they're following their base, but that they have donors, billionaires, who are calling the agenda of what they should do and what they shouldn't do because the people want power and they want to block government legislation that is against their best interests, whether it's big pharma or whether it's fossil fuel industry, etc. Um, and uh, there's a lot of, so there's potential buying off with money, but there's also blackmail material that's been developed on many politicians that keeps them in line. Um, but I mean so like Trump, Lindsey Graham. Yeah, so like Trump, like Trump is, is uh, streetwise, but he's not educated. And he's not that clever, and people keep calling him so brilliant, and I don't see it that way, honestly. Um, but he is a master communicator at reading a room if the room is filled with people nodding and smiling and feeding his narcissism. But how would you then deprogram Trump's cult followers. I mean, this ought to be something the Democratic Party ought to be thinking about because yes. it's really looking pretty dangerous now. And Trump is a fascist. Uh, there's no two ways about yes. it. Did you see yes. his speech yeah. after he was arrested and indicted? He went back to Bedminster and spoke to a bunch of donors. It was uh, pure he Mussolini. He did. Yeah, no, I absolutely. And, he's, and it will get worse, it will get more extreme. So what helped get me out of the moon cult was because I was so convinced I wasn't in a cult and I hadn't been brainwashed. But when I was asked, would I like to learn what Chinese communist brainwashing techniques were of now? Of course, I wanted to know that because they were evil. And when I started learning about the criteria of brainwashing and mind control, it became really obvious that the that I was in was doing exactly the same thing, which began the dissonance between my real identity and my cult identity. And meeting former members who are articulate and who are happy and fulfilled being out of the cult, that, that contradicted the phobias that were put in my mind that I would become demon-possessed if I ever left the group. And um, so what can, what can be done? Education, educating people, uh, amplifying the voices of former members of many, many different types of mind control cults, um, having hearings, um, uh, bringing in top experts on brainwashing, mind control, hypnosis, and cults, but also doing a public health uh, initiative where there's inoculation programs that are developed and implemented uh, for all citizens, especially young people, uh, teaching mental health professionals and others how to do interventions 
to help people to reality test and recovery systems for people coming coming out. Um, because uh, when you're in one of these groups, you're made to um, feel that uh, there's no way out. But Stephen, and no one uh, will ever accept you if you leave. Sure, but what you just told us, and how is that going to apply to Trump's cult followers, which is largely the Republican Party itself, if they're impervious to news and information? They don't believe anything in the New York Times or on ABC, CBS, NBC. So yeah, how do you get them to, be, the to understand? Yeah, so my what works for me, and we do have to, you know, develop the scale, but what we should start with is every person listening to this who has a family member or friend or coworker who's in the cult of Trump, start being uh, warm, curious, respectful, stop calling them names and stupid and yelling at them and develop a warm relationship with them about non-political topics to start with, find common uh, areas, and then ask them to go back in time to when they first heard of Trump and what was their first impression and help, help them to start remembering what were the sequence of events that started convincing them to take him seriously that he could actually win as a presidential person. And there are many techniques, but they have to be um, non-confrontative, asking a question with a curious, respectful term, um, and empowering the person to reality test. Well, I'll Steve, also add, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, we're running out of time, but I wanted, yeah. in context of what you just said, Let's play a clip of Liz Cheney speaking a couple of days ago before the 92nd Street Y in New York. So let's play what she had to say. What we've done in our politics is create a situation where we're electing idiots. <laughs> and, um, and so... I, I don't look at it through the lens of like, you know, is this what I should do or what I shouldn't do? I look at it through the lens of how do we elect serious people? And I think electing serious people can't be partisan. So that was Liz Cheney speaking a couple of days ago. So, Steve, just in closing, you think that's the wrong technique to call Trump's people idiots, even though we are becoming an idiocracy? I absolutely think it's the wrong way to go. And... Um, and we have to stop the polarization by understanding that it's a man-made mental illness that can be cured. And the people who've already woken up and gotten out are the ones, the voices that need to get amplified. Um, and that everybody else just needs to have an exit ramp for their family and friends by saying, I miss you and I want you in my life and you're important to me and apologizing if necessary for cursing or not inviting the person to their uh, life cycle event, like a wedding or whatever. And mm -hmm. just because it's really warmth and connection that's going to be the cure in the end to end the polarization 
And it's not whipping up left versus right or right versus left. We should all be against authoritarianism and fascism and in support of human rights. Well, Steve, um, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Stephen Hassan, one of the foremost authorities on cults and mind control and the founder of the Freedom of Mind Resource Center, Incorporated. He's a nationally certified counselor, licensed mental health counselor, and the author of three of the most respected books on the subject of cults, which include Combating Cult Mind Control, the number one guide to protection, rescue, and recovery from destructive cults, Releasing the Bonds, Empowering People to Think for Themselves, and Freedom of Mind, Helping Loved Ones Leave Controlling People. And his latest book just out is The Cult of Trump. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update on the aftermath of the mutiny inside the Russian military and the Ukrainian counteroffensive underway. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Olga Lartman, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy and Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin Filed podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations, and tactics used in their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. She has a new Substack newsletter covering Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Central Europe, with a focus on Russia's intelligence operations, available at olgalautman.substack.com. Welcome to Background Briefing, Olga Lautman. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Olga. And Prigozhin is still MIA, missing in action, as as is uh, General Surevikin. So what's going on there? I mean, my assumption, Olga, is that Putin doesn't want to kill Prigozhin quite yet, because he doesn't want to make him martyr out of him, and he'd rather just take over his media assets, which is what he's doing, and other of his companies, and just slowly feed um, propaganda, uh, discrediting him for misappropriating funds and whatever, and try and diminish his importance with the the right-wing nationalists who support him. So what's your analysis? I think you're correct on that. I think that, um, you know, there have been reports, uh, specifically from Ukrainian intelligence, that Putin has instructed FSB to assassinate Prigozhin. But with that said, I don't think it's something that is going to happen imminently. I think in the past, you know, week since this uh, mutiny or rebellion um, uh, happened, um, that they have spent basically... uh, First of all, confusing the situation and, you know, and of what exactly happened and and trying to minimize the rebellion. And at the same time, discrediting Prigozhin, discrediting Wagnerites, um, his mercenary group. And um, at the same time, also, you know, seizing his assets, showing his uh, various passports, showing uh, buses filled with cash. So um, they're definitely working right now more focused on the information space 
Um, and then, but I do think that Pergosian, you know, it's definitely going to be a target because something like this is not forgiven, not in the Soviet Union and not in Russia. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Olga, General Sorovikin is also missing in action. And a lot of the Russian pilots who were ordered to strafe and bomb the convoy on its way to Moscow refused to do so. They're being punished, are they not? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, there's going to be definitely an internal mutiny um, because we saw that Prigozhin, you know, crossed over into Rostov and he knocked um, on the Southern Military District, you know, headquarters, uh, the door, basically sat down with the um, main general in charge. And then was able to go straight through to, you know, basically 200 kilometers uh, from Moscow. Now, something like this would not have been done, first of all, without prior planning and second of all, without inside help. And we saw pretty much all the security services and various units that are supposed to protect Russia kind of peel away into the background. So Putin was basically left like an emperor without clothes, not knowing who actually will side with the Kremlin and who will come out to defend him. And um, for that, there definitely is going to be, like I said, an internal mutiny. And they will be going through uh, pretty much, you know, um, everyone and as well as the Wagner rights, because they will also continue being a target. Well, apparently Putin's inner circle, um, you know, the Rottenbergs and others, these oligarchs close to him, were rushed to the airport to their private jets. So that's not a good image of the rats deserting a sinking ship. And pretty much that's all we saw in Moscow were uh, jets uh, and helicopters flying um, uh, out of Moscow, taking senior officials and, you know, all the uh, elite out of the city. So, I mean, you know, it definitely was an embarrassment for Putin. It definitely, you know, showed Putin um, that he doesn't know who he can trust in his military, his intelligence and security services. And it also is one of Putin's biggest fears, because don't forget how Putin started out where he was impressionable. And that was in Dresden when, you know, protesters came marching through and taking over Stasi headquarters and then headed for KGB. Then he came back to the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union collapsed. And you saw tanks on the street of Moscow. Um, so, you know, uh, revolution is one of his biggest fears. And at the moment that he saw, you know, a potential overthrow of his government, you did not see the, you know, what we basically saw were a lot of bulldozers digging trenches. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> where, where are all the other services in the military units and, you know, and everyone else that is supposed to protect Russia from an invasion? Well, in 1987, when he was in Dresden, Putin was actually in Berlin, and David Bowie had a concert right up against the wall on the west side, and all the young East Berliners just flocked to the wall to listen to the music, and Putin, along with the Vox Polisei, were were trying to stop this, and the Stasi were trying to stop this sort of tide of, of kids. And even Putin's own guys and the Stasi were joining in, and he was absolutely furious. <laughs> and then the promoters of the David Bowie concert turned the, the speakers towards East Berlin, and then the, just the 
crowds just surged and Putin's left standing there ranting and fuming. And then a week later, at the very same spot, Ronald Reagan made his famous uh, speech to Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And that convinced Putin entirely that the whole thing, that David Bowie was working for the CIA and this whole thing was a setup to... And, of course, you know, David Bowie represents Western corruption, this kind of androgynous image that Putin finds so offensive. So he's always had this kind of glavni protivnik idea of the main enemy and, and this paranoia. But I wanted to ask you about Putin's hypermasculinity, which has been his signature, you know, taking his shirt off, riding horses, all that stuff that he projects, the sort of music, uh, you know, the real man. To some extent, Prigozhin has that image as well, does he not? That these are sort of competing musics, you know, real men? Absolutely. And the reason that Prigozhin, because look, I, you know, have been warning since last year because we saw pretty much this uh, fight between Prigozhin and the Ministry of Defense escalated after uh, Ukraine's successful counteroffensive. And that's when you saw Prigozhin come out, I mean, uh, you know, saying words that were unthinkable, criticizing all the elite. Um, you know, going after Ministry of Defense, going after the Duma, going after the oligarchs. And you saw this turn in uh, with the military bloggers. And if anything, it is very interesting because Prigozhin is a master of, you know, directing populist movements. He directed it in the United States, across Europe. And you saw him turning these same tactics over the past pretty much, you know, nine, ten months against Russia and Russians. And he, if you see Prigozhin, he is always, you know, on the battlefield, surrounded by dead Wagnerites, or you hear, you know, the the rockets falling and the shells, whereas Putin has been painted basically over the past year as pretty much missing in action, or if he does come out, it's in staged events, and it's always surrounded by gold and, you know, uh, ornaments and, you know, and, and luxury and, like, the elite, you know, existence that he lives in. So you see this very big contrast between Prigozhin and um, Putin being painted over the past, you know, year and same with Zelensky. Zelensky, you know, has gone to the front lines numerous times with shells, uh, uh, with shelling, as shelling isn't happening in the background. And you see him among the troops. And Prigozhin has painted himself as the, you know, person among the people. Um, and this, we see this, you know, kind of dynamic over the past nine months. And at this point now, again, I'm interestingly enough, there was a report that when this rebellion was happening, that Putin was sitting on a yacht in one of the, you know, uh, one of his French Cabo troops yacht. And while Prigozhin and, you know, the Wagnerites are storming towards Moscow. So, again, you see even during um, you know, the actual rebellion, you see Putin, you know, painted in this uh, elite circles while Prigozhin is, you know, acting as if he's with the people. Mm-hmm. And 
most importantly, um, you know, it is important to remember that Prigozhin is a terrorist and the Wagnerites are terrorists. And the fact that you saw so much support within Russia for a terrorist organization that deploys tactics such as beheadings and uh, tortures and rapes as their mode of operation, you know, it is also very telling of what is happening and why Prigozhin was gaining the popularity because Putin wasn't strong enough. Prigozhin is the one who is exhibiting the strength and the power and the control. Right. Using heads, using a sledgehammer to smash people's heads in, it's just exactly. unbelievable what a brutal, horrible man he is. And, of course, he started out his career in St. Petersburg, robbing women because women were vulnerable, you know, and choking them and stealing their purses. And then he went to jail and then came back as a hot dog vendor and ended up um, as a supplier to the uh, Russian military, uh, along with helping them out with the um, Internet Research Agency that did active measures in the 2016 campaign to help Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton. So... He's, but he's a, he's a figure of the past, obviously, as we've established early. It looks as if he's a dead man walking. But let's turn to Ukraine, Olga, because Zelensky's complaining that the West is... He didn't name which NATO countries, but he said they're just dragging their heels on these promises to train pilots for F-16s. They're dragging their heels on the supply of munitions. What's going on there? This is a, an old story, and I don't understand why... The U.S. And, and NATO say, oh, you can't have this weapon, you can't have that. And eventually, after setting their own red lines, they agree to supply them. But months later, so there's always been this delay. And now they're in the midst of a counteroffensive. And now, you know, Zelensky's still complaining that they're not standing the stuff that they've promised. Yeah, I mean, look, you have to understand, Ukraine is, uh, you know, under a full-scale invasion, the first one in Europe since post-World War II, um, you know, they have the support of the NATO countries, you know, and, and um, full support of the United States. And, you know, and for the most part, you know, the international community um, is doing everything they can to help Ukraine, whether it's with uh, sending military weapons or um money or, you know, um, non-lethal we uh, weapons and humanitarian aid and whatnot. But at the same time, you know, Ukraine needs to win. For them, every single day that Russia is on their territory, people are being murdered. Um, there are attacks against cities. We have seen cities completely disappear off the map. And the fact that the West, you know, who wants to resolve this war keeps dragging um it is it is a problem because you know these are things like you know the tanks got approved in the spring if tanks were approved last year then you know ukraine would have been that much further ahead of the game if most of these weapons that you know are in talk now we're hearing about atacoms and potentially f-16s coming if all of this was sent to ukraine last year the war could have potentially been over. And Russia is not a country to sit and negotiate with. First of all, Russia has made very clear that they do not think Ukraine should exist. They are burning Ukrainian books. They are tearing down and targeting Ukrainian cultural centers. They are in occupied territories, you know, 
taking uh, over, basically throwing out and replacing with uh, all the Ukrainian uh, history with Russian history. They are kidnapping tens of thousands of children, taking them inside of Russia to re-educate them to be Russians and forget their Ukrainian past and heritage and language. So now, how do you sit down and negotiate with a country that wants you dead, wants you wiped out of off the face of this earth? And that's why negotiations is not a path. The only path is for um, total defeat of Russia on Ukrainian soil to liberate every inch of soil. And if the West wants this done, they should, you know, stop dragging the shipments and approvals and send it much earlier. And this is where the frustration is, because every few days we see, I mean, just a few days ago, Russia sent a rocket into a, in the middle of a day into a pizza restaurant where, you know, people are sitting, kids and families are sitting and eating, you know, lunch. Right. People die. One of the things you I know, this, got- this could have been prevented, you know. Right, but one of the thing, disturbing things about the attack on the pizza place with the missile, the, apparently they, the Ukrainian intelligence services arrested a Ukrainian working for the Russians who sent pictures and coordinates of the uh, pizza place. Apparently they thought there maybe was somebody of high-value target in, in the pizza place. Instead, they killed twin 14-year-old girls and injured a whole group of Colombians students who were, and, mm-hmm. uh, who were there. But that indicates the problem that Ukraine has with this fifth column and how much how they've been penetrated by the Russians. Absolutely. And look, Ukraine and pretty much every neighbor of Russia has an, you know, an increasing problem because Russia has infiltrated, you know, pretty much all, all fabrics of society, security services and and whatnot. So you are going to have these problems. And I mean, you see how long, you know, Russia's reach is because in the United States, how far are we from Russia and how penetrated is our government? I mean, to this day, you have, a, a you know, a section of the Republican Party who's cheering Putin on, you know, and then you had recent arrests, you know, in, in, in secure in FBI, you know, who was on the Kremlin's payroll or an old dark connected to the Kremlin. So it is a huge problem of having, you know, Russia infiltrating and Ukraine, obviously, you know, there because they are next door to Russia, they have a much wider scale problem. But it is something that definitely, you know, they are attempting to address to root out the traitors and and get ahead of it. But with that, it takes time because at the same time, they are, you know, fighting a full scale invasion. So just in closing then, Olga Lautman, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said that this counteroffensive is going to be a long and bloody war going on for months. And again, this is the price that the Ukrainians are paying. They only have a third of the population, or even less than the Russia's, Russia does. And they're obviously losing a lot of men. So that's the ultimate tragedy, isn't it? That's the consequence of the West dragging their heels and dithering more Ukrainians die. Absolutely. And I'll tell you even a worse consequence and the biggest nightmare that is unfolding as 
Americans are preparing to celebrate, you know, the July 4th weekend and spend time with family and eat hot dogs. Ukrainians are holding drills of, uh, you know, the people in the towns in preparations of Russia blowing up the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Again, is this something new? No. Russia mined the plant in August of last year, and this was reported by a Russian investigative outlet um, who obtained photos and information from their insiders. So Russia, since they took Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the second one, the largest one in Europe, they took control of it uh, days after they launched their full-scale invasion. They've had control of it. And now there are, you know, there are reports that potentially that they may be preparing to blow it up, just like they did recently with the Kahovka Dam, which, again, Ukrainians were warning the international community for the past year that this can happen, and it created one of the biggest ecological disasters. So, yes, this is the price Ukrainians are paying for fighting for their freedom, and at the same time, the international community, even with the nuclear plant, I, I know the IAEA, you know, went there last year and generated a report this year that, yes, uh, Russia um, potentially has mined certain uh, control rooms and whatnot. But has anyone done anything? And if that nuclear plant goes off, guess what? This is going to attack and kill more Ukrainians in the town surrounding and then depending on the winds, you know, potentially can go to Europe or Turkey or back into Russia. Well, Olga Lapman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Olga Lapman, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations, and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. She has a new Substack newsletter covering Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Central Europe, with a focus on Russia's intelligence operations, available at olgalautman.substack.com. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Bye for now.